Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. So hello there ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the DNF1 F1 podcast. Uh, my name's Adam Burns, I'm one of your hosts this evening and joining me once again via the telephone as we're respecting social distancing is Courtney Pine. Courtney, how are you doing this evening? All well? I'm doing fine. Good evening ladies and gents. So for those of you that listened to the last podcast episode which went live last Friday I believe... Um, yeah, it was a bit of a delay because we've just been going through some stuff and obviously been busy with editing. It was a long episode. Um, and I think because we've not really had much engagement in terms of uh, interest, I suppose is the right word, over some of these podcasts. I mean, we're still growing. Uh, it's going to take some time. But obviously, there's more important things going on in the world at the moment. So obviously, people aren't really engaged in sport as they would normally be when it's usually active. So in the last episode, we went on to talk about some of our favourite cars, um, some modern, some not so modern, and just to talk a little bit about why we thought they were so good, uh, and Courtney had kindly prepared a list of some of his favourite cars, and then obviously I gave a bit of a technical analysis into what made them so great, um, and now this week we're going to do an episode where it's going to be some of my favourite cars, so same logic. I've picked four cars from my all-time list, although I will admit some of the cars, Courtney, I think you'll remember, um, they would have easily been on my list if you hadn't already brought them up in last week's episode. Wouldn't you agree? Sorry about that. <laughs> no, it's absolutely fine. I mean, I'll let you... This is always the problem of letting you go first or letting someone go no, first. I've got, I've, got, I've got first dibs. <laughs> Double entendres everywhere on that. So, but if you're interested, guys, that episode, we, we li- literally put it out last Friday. It's a really good episode, put a lot of stuff on the YouTube channel. And if you're listening to it on podcasting platforms like Spotify or iTunes or Apple Podcasts, then do check that out. It's on the YouTube channel. While you're there, 
do like, share and subscribe to the channel. It really helps us out a lot. And I think at the moment when we're still trying to build an audience in this difficult time and being consistent, we could really do with your support. Uh, I think we've got 18 subscribers, which I'm actually quite happy about. I know it doesn't sound much on the grand scheme of things, but I got a little notification today, Courtney, to say someone new had subscribed to our channel. Oh, yeah. So it's kind of nice when you see that. kind of gives you a bit of a lift and kind of motivates you to keep doing what you're doing because we do work quite hard on these podcasts, and I feel like... Well, well here's, you know, the, here's the thing, though. We had, we had a conversation about this, what, was it yesterday or the day before? Uh, I think it was yesterday. We couldn't have chosen a worse time start a podcast <laughs> <laughs> yeah trust us to find motivation on something like this in the middle of a global crisis if we had started this a year ago like we planned to originally we might actually be somewhere along the way and it wouldn't be so bad but because um we're in the situation we're in it's a very difficult time for people that are new content creators like ourselves and other things that we want to do in the future but we'll persevere like everyone well, yeah, else we, at the end of the day we're doing a podcast about Formula One. There is no Formula One on. Yeah. So we're stuck in base form at the moment, mate. And this is it. I think some of our more juicy episodes, like we talked about the Then versus Now series, which we will be doing eventually, and we have an episode ready to put out for you guys, which we're really excited about. But of course, there's some stuff we want to work on in terms of the quality of it and other bits we want to put in. But we don't want to put that out just yet because no. we it's a very big thing and we don't want to waste it when we're brand new to this and we know it could be so much better for you guys because we feel you guys deserve so much more from that even from new content creators like that us so when things start to improve and obviously people engage and want to be interested in formula one again then that's when we'll start putting out that kind of content but until then we still got some great stuff we still got some great stuff we want to talk about we did a good episode last week so do check that out guys i know i keep plugging it but do check it out it's a really good one quite a lot of funny stuff in there as well um, you can also follow us on social media as well. Courtney's done a lot of great work on the Instagram page, and that's right, DNF. Right. Yeah, so <laughs> no, he's done a lot of great work, a lot of good stuff on there, and you can follow that on Instagram. It's DNF one underscore podcast, um, and it's the same handle for Twitter as well. Although I will admit, Twitter, I've not really been doing much on that Twitter page if I'm honest. So a bit of a faux pas from me on there, but obviously I'm going to be engaging a bit more on that in the future when everyone's a bit more involved but i think instagram's always a good social network for that kind of thing really so i'd say it's very easy to run the instagram page but it's it's easy you say that but i mean there's a lot more great content on instagram i think twitter's like hilarious but i think instagram's so much easier to communicate it kind of merges it merges the best bits of snapchat and in twitter together in my mind um, and, and it's and it's great so yeah definitely follow the instagram page do follow the twitter page as well helps out um but do subscribe to the YouTube channel as well. And obviously, if you follow us via a podcasting platform, as I mentioned a few earlier, do follow and download from there as well. It really helps us out a lot. Anyway. Yeah, mind, Adam, I just want to backtrack a little bit. I'm yeah, doing, go I on. Didn't this, I didn't raise this point, well, even yesterday. If you have a look through our videos, okay, I'd say our most viewed videos were the pre-season testing ones. Yeah, because that's right. There's an interest. That's what I mean. Because there's an interest, like an energy, an intrigue about what's going on and what's to come, or reevaluating things. And we don't have any of those things at our disposal at the moment, so we're kind of clutching at straws. We're doing our best, though. 
Yeah, I mean, we're definitely trying for you guys. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I know I talk about some of these episodes we've got in the pipeline that are going to be really, really good. And I know it may make it sound like I'm holding these back deliberately because I don't want to waste them. But the truth is that I just feel that you guys are going to enjoy this so much more when we put a bit more time and a bit more effort and everyone is like mega, mega motivated and intrigued and really wants to get involved. Um, And I think that because everyone else's focus is on different things, more important stuff than sport, not that there are many things in people's minds that fit that bill, but I think it's going to be much better for you guys and you'll enjoy them so much more, as we will too. And we don't want to feel like we're just throwing stuff at you for the sake of keeping this going because we're not. But obviously, you know, your support, even at this time, is really, really appreciated. I mean, I think I'm right in saying, Courtney, that I think on YouTube, especially, our most popular videos at the start of the season, they were getting around 150 odd views plus which is mega for a YouTube channel that has 18 subscribers, like I said, and every one of those people that have subscribed to us, we can only thank you unconditionally for your support. And obviously I hope that there are many more of you listening to this podcast when it goes live that will want to be involved and help us out. So guys, you know, plug and plea all this we would like to do. If you can help us out, just leave a like, subscribe, even if you only watch every other podcast and stuff like that. That's absolutely fine. But obviously, I don't, I don't, it's great. A little bit, yeah. I feel like I need to. <laughs> should we have a charity boxing match when this is all over, and I talk some smack about you and you and me, and then we'll cuss each other and all that crap. I, I, I'm gonna do. Um, I'm gonna do a diss track. If I did a diss track, it'd probably sound like something from the streets. <laughs> do you know what? I, I reckon I could produce a really good. A diss trap all the music and everything else the video would be great and then you'd absolutely destroy me with your lyrics in yours and then mine would be worthless <laughs> all that massive production they do and it's worth waffle in terms of lyrics and you just hit me with one line and it's like I'm going to end this there'll man's be, whole career be, yeah there'll be like there'll be like a, a wobbly camera and I'll be spitting bars with alarmers in that's background. it mate be like spitting fire <laughs> you remember those videos that a super hot fire guy that no. be, do you not? Oh my God, Courtney! Do you not know? Super hot fire! Come on, you got to be pulling my leg. You must know. I really don't. I don't know what you want about. Oh my God! Right for you guys that, okay, so Courtney, you can check this out as well. You know exactly what I mean. But for you guys that are familiar, or even if you're not, just type in on YouTube "super hot fire." Right? There's this guy that does the um, does this rap battle, and it's like a parody of rap battles. And this other guy he's battling with spits loads of these bars and lyrics and everything else and really lays into this guy. And this other guy called Super Fire, he just spits a few lyrics, silly things, and he's got the whole entourage behind him. They all make noise. That's where you see that gif of that guy with the leather jacket and the glasses, Courtney, and all his mates, the entourage, are all like hands to their faces all in shock like what he's just said that's oh, where that that's where yeah, that gif, yeah. yeah that's where that originates from there you go light bulb yeah <laughs> no, I was saying because what he does that would be you to me I'd put all the lyrics to you and say all these disses and everything else and everyone's like oh okay okay he's got some he's got some fire and then you'll just say like two words and everyone's like oh and that's it end this man's career so yeah, we'll, we'll probably put that in the pipeline a little bit later on when diss tracks start becoming popular again. I think that kind of died out a couple of years ago. Yeah, yeah. I think it's got to the point on YouTube where they're actually, everyone's so bored that like the YouTubers that did the diss tracks are watching the diss tracks made about them. Yeah. I'm okay, I've heard that one. Yeah, nah, I get you, I get you. That's, 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 that's the point it's got to now, isn't it? That people are re-bringing their content because they can't really do much. Hmm. I wonder if KSI might do that because his old content was really good. Nowadays, it's like, eh, okay, but 
he's doing other things. So, you know, fair play. Maybe he might try that. Food for thought. I always, always think that he should, um, he should react to Dragon Ball episodes. Yeah, he's a Dragon Ball fan. I'm sure there are a lot of people that do that. Yeah. Yeah. We should probably. probably Yeah, we're 10 minutes in and we haven't mentioned one thing about Formula One yet. (laughs) We're just rambling. This is it. Uh, (laughs) But yeah, no, definitely, guys, you know, we appreciate your support. And obviously, the more that you guys can support us, the more we can do. So that's brilliant. Anyway, moving swiftly along to the bane of the episode, what we actually planned to talk about. So, as I said, last week we released an episode where Courtney gave us a list of his favourite Formula 1 cars, and between the two of us we talked a bit in bits about what we liked about them, what we thought made them so special, and what we thought resonated with us the most. So this week, I'm going to put forward a few cars of my own list. So I've had a bit of a thought over this, and... I'm not going to lie, Courtney, I know I sent you this list, but first things first, what do you think of my list? Are you impressed? Surprised? Um, I like the fact that you've gone for some older cars, because I know I like the, the earliest I went for was, what, the MP44, mm. 1988. You've, you've gone for some uh, proper retro cars. I think what was great about some of these older cars, and I'll talk about this a bit more as we go along in this episode was it, it just makes you appreciate how great and how ballsy some of these drivers were. Like, they had some massive, serious cojones on them to drive these machines. And I think that was in the in the era of Formula One where cars were just so unsafe that you just expected... I think, if I'm right in quoting this, I think Nicky Lauda said in the 70s that every year... Um, there was always a 20% chance every time you got into the car that you would not walk away from it, like you would die from a crash. And that's a surprisingly high percentage. You might think, oh, 80% that you'll live. I can live with that. But if you think about that, on average, back in those days, in the 70s, two drivers from every grid used to die or suffer an accident that rendered them unable to compete again in Formula 1. Nowadays, if you heard those kind of statistics, you wouldn't race. As simple as that. Or you wouldn't race under the current format. You'd have to re, you know, you'd have to reinvent the rules to a point where you would ensure that nobody could die from that sort of thing. And when we see innovations like the halo and the aero screens and other stuff that they've introduced to the monocoque and structure and all of that, you would that was unheard of back then. It's incredible. So I hope some of these cars on this list, in particular, the older ones you guys will appreciate the simplistic nature of them that made them so beautiful and elegant, but also the fact that these were just complete death traps. And these guys, this is why we talk about Formula One as being a dangerous sport. And even now, while we forget how dangerous it used to be and how far we've come, and these cars help to exemplify that message. They really do. So the first car on my list, without further ado, is the Lotus 49. The Lotus Type 49 which was back in the 1960s, 1967 to 1970. And Courtney, I'm sure you agree with me. When I look at this car, I do I do start to tremble a little bit when I watch this. It is absolutely beautiful, this car. Well, I think, I think like around the time, it kind of defined the era. It really it? did, yeah. But when, you, when, you, when you think of Formula 1 cars in that era... That's a car. That's one of the first cars that comes to mind. 
I, I mean, it's beautiful and elegant in every way. Um, I'm, I'm sure... I mean, there's literally the attention to detail, I should say, that there's really little left to the imagination. It's as literally as raw and bare as you could get in a Formula One car in terms of bodywork structure. Um, to talk about this car in a little more detail, the Lotus 49, back from 1967, 1970, and this was back in the era where they never used to roll out a new car every time. Of course, they'd develop it and change things that didn't work over time through R&D. But you would find that some of these cars would race for three or four years at a time if it was good enough. And this one was definitely good enough to do that. Um, it was a car designed by Colin Chapman, very famous race designer. Colin Chapman was involved in Lotuses and some of the in Brabham's in the future, BRM's. Brilliant, legendary designer. Also, Maurice Philippe was involved in this one for the 1967 F1 season. It was designed around the Cosworth DFV engine that... And, and these engines in particular, Courtney, these were like the pioneers, these DFE engines. They were so good um, that they would power most of the Formula 1 grid through the 1970s. In particular, the Lotus 72, which was the famous black and gold Lotus that you guys would have seen. If you can remember the episode of Top Gear where the, the Jeremy Clarkson, James May and Richard Hammond are in Spain on a holiday in their luxury supercars, so to speak. Not supercars, luxury cars. Um, and the Stig did a lap around a track in Spain in a Lotus Type 72. That was the car he used then, and it was a, that was a brilliant piece of machinery. Dominated the early part of the 70s with Emerson Fittipaldi, but the 49 Lotus that come before that was definitely um, a great predecessor for it with the Cosworth DFE engines. Um, it was one of the first F1 cars to use the stress member drivetrain, and the aim of this was to reduce the weight. Um, and it was the first car or drivetainment of its type that was copied widely by other teams. Most teams would be quite secretive about what they would do with their cars, but this one in particular was so popular and it worked so well that so many other teams tried to copy this um, and make it their own. This car in particular, famous, I mean, the list of drivers, Courtney, and you won't be surprised to hear this, it, like, it's illustrious just by looking at the names of the drivers that drove this, drove this car from that period. I'll just run a few lists of the names. So, in no particular order, Jim Clark, arguably to many people the greatest Formula One driver of all time. Mm. Um, and definitely, I. Definitely um, up there with the best of the British. Oh, I, I, in my mind, there's a lot of stuff about Jim Clark in particular where I could argue him to be the GOAT. I know people talk about the Senna, Schumacher, Hamilton as well in that argument, even Alain Prost to some degree. Jim Clark definitely belongs in that argument at minimum. Um, yeah. Top Gear did a great uh, not Top Gear, the Grand Tour did a great documentary on him that I definitely recommend people to watch just to exonify how great Jim Clark was behind the wheel um, other driver included the legendary Graham Hill, Mario Andretti as well uh, Joachim Rint, Yo Stif, uh, Stif, Siffert, yes Yo Siffert sorry and, and of course Emerson Fittipaldi um, and surprisingly uh, this car had two championship reigns, constructors and drivers, in 1968 and 1970, uh, won by Graham Hill and Jochen Rint, respectively, in 68 and 70, and the constructors title the same years. 42 Grand Prix it competed in, 12 wins, which is still very impressive. It might not seem right. like it's a great record, but it is really impressive. Well, it wasn't, you got to remember, Formula 1 wasn't so heavily, like, regulated, so... It wasn't so easy for teams to dominate. No, you're absolutely right. And this was an era where the dominant teams of Formula 1 were the likes of 
Uh, Lotus were very prominent, obviously. Tyrrell were very strong. BRM was a good team back then. And Ferrari had their moments as well in the in the early 70s. But so it was very difficult. I mean, we talk about the teams now. In some ways, there is a competitive nature of the top three teams. But back then, it was just so difficult to win races, owing to the reliability as well. So to win yeah. almost a third uh, of those Grand Prix at that era was very impressive nonetheless. Um, this car won on its debut in Jim Clark's hands, um, and it also provided him with the last win of his career in 1968, sadly, before his death in the F2 race in the F2 race in Germany that followed in his career. I mean, it's it's easy to say perhaps this car would have won even more races if Jim Clark was still racing, had survived and was still continuing to race in the Lotus. Um, I mean, Graham Hill went on to win that year's title as well in 68, uh, and the car continued to win races into 1970, and I think that shows the hallmarks of a great car when you can win races in multiple years, not just one. And that's what all of these cars in my list have in common. They were able to win races in more they, than just one season. Well, yeah, they define eras, don't they, rather than seasons? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I think this list definitely, you know, shows that in great detail. I mean, the story of this car it, it comes from um, Lotus had competed in in the three liter formula um, back in the sixties, and they had a very difficult first year in sixty six. And Colin Chapman had went back to the drawing board to come up with a design that was both kind of back to basics and forward thinking. And he was taking inspiration from early designs on this car, particularly the Lotus 43 and the Lotus 38 in the IndyCar series. So the 49 was the first F1 car to be powered by the Cosworth Ford DFE engine. Um, And this is after Colin Chapman had convinced Henry Ford himself to build an F1 power plant in Detroit. Now this was usually unheard of. Detroit was not obviously an area well known for cars and that but obviously Ford had really helped to put this on the map so when he convinced them to build a power plant there which obviously made the baby that was known as the DFE engine it was so impressive and the Lotus 49 it was an advanced design in Formula 1 because of its chassis configuration it was a specifically designed engine that had a stress bearing structure member uh, which was bolted onto the monocoque at one end and the suspension and the gearbox at the other and because this design was so impressive um and so complex in some way, virtually all Formula One cars have been built in the exact same way, in this fashion. You could literally look at the modern cars now and they're built exactly the same way. This car was a pioneer for chassis and engineering design. And so. I think it's lasted that long. Yeah, I mean. I mean, we talked last episode about the 1988 McLaren MP4 4. And. Some of the innovations in that car that still carry through today, you know, the the 93 Williams as well, the FW14, those things that are implemented today, they still stand the test of time. And we go even further back to the 49 Lotus, which dates as back as 1967. And some of the concept of the predecessors that Lotus and Colin Chapman was very heavily involved in, these designs still resonate today. So he was so ahead of his time. And the Lotus 49 was a great example of that. Um, other examples of this, Lotus was the first team to use aerofoil win- wings. And these were introduced in the 1968 Monaco Grand Prix. So you can see on the Lotus now, that usually people look at the Lotus 49 as a green and gold design. But there's obviously the latter designs when they had the change in sponsorship 
with a cigarette company in the late 60s and 1970, where the design of the car become a red and orange, a red and gold colour that some people are more familiar with. I think Adrian Newey has a, uh, a a red and gold 1970s Lotus 49. I think he did a feature with Martin Brundle on Sky with this okay. car. And funny enough, ran Zandvoort, actually. Um and originally these wings were bolted directly to the suspension they were supported by slender struts so they're quite high up they're really tall wings like that and that's how they were put forward these wings were mounted several feet above the chassis of the car and the effective use and it, sorry had more effective use of clean air I should say and the only problem was it though caught is that they were very fragile uh, and they had several breakages which led to dangerous accidents and the high wings yeah. themselves were banned and Lotus had to mount these wings directly onto the bodywork, which is a lot more like we see today. So there is an advantage to having it the other way, but they were just so fragile and they couldn't stay on the car. They just couldn't handle the loads and pressures that was happening on these cars. So, God, yeah, particularly, particularly then. Can you imagine what the suspension would have been like? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it was great. I mean... You look at all these innovations, and I think unreliability... Oh, sorry, reliability, I should probably say the right way. Reliability was always the pet peeve for this Lotus 49. As impressive as it was, it could have done so much more if it was more reliable. Um, yeah. Graham Hill found this car quite easy to drive, and it was very responsive, but the power of this forward engine was so good, it was very difficult to handle, and Jim Clark didn't like it originally. He always had reservations about it and because the V8 engine would have sudden bursts that they wouldn't really anticipate so it was quite difficult to get on top of um, a famous quote that Graham Hill in particular had about this car after his first run he said it's typical witty fashion it's got some poke not a bad old tool <laughs> it's quite a <laughs> yeah it, it does yeah yeah <laughs> Very much so, yeah, and no, I agree, it's something you probably would say. <laughs> Some people probably scratching their heads like, what the hell does that mean? Um, <laughs> uh, I think we'll have to set up Cockney subtitles. I think so, yeah, I think you're going to have to give a little bit of a video. I think, actually, that's the point, guys. If you put, Add an extra like on this video if you want Courtney to uh, give you all a lesson in Cockney rhyming slang on the DNF1 podcast. Do a bit of a feature on there. And in the background, you've got Chaz and Dave music in the background just to uh, set the mood. The old Peaky Blinders look. I mean, Peaky Blinders is popular, so, you know, it'll probably go down well. Peaky Blinders are based in Vermont, matter. Yeah, I know, but I don't know. It's just people... Look, you're, you're thinking about the look, the old flat cap, aren't you? Well, yeah, of course. Like, you rock that look, so, you know. I think people would be all right with that. You know what? I'm, I'm going to pull it out there for anyone that cares, which I'm sure they don't. Um, I do like wearing flat caps, but I've actually never watched an episode of Peaky, the Peaky Blinders, so <laughs> I haven't actually done it for that reason. I just like how they look. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> 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 we went up on a tangent. Uh, we always seem to do that. I think that's just how it is. I'm definitely going to do a podcast called the Off Tangent Podcast and just ramble there you on. Go. That's, that's, if, we, if, we, if we start a second channel, that's what we can call it. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's a good point, actually. You'll see yeah. how that goes. We're, we're innovating there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, so getting back to Lotus 49. So the Lotus 49 was, as it went forward, obviously was successful. It should have won more championships, perhaps. Um, it really, in 1967, reliability issues with the DFE engine really had 
cause it problems. Obviously, there was spark plug trouble for Graham Hill in Belgium. The old Belgium track was like 8.7 miles long, I think. And, and then they had further issues at the French Grand Prix, which hosted the old Le Mans circuit. And they, yeah, I think Clark in particular, I think he famously ran out of fuel in Monza during that Grand Prix. And mechanical problems like that, it cost them that championship in 67. But obviously, 68 was a better year for them. Cosworth and Lotus perfected their designs, and that was clearly the way forward for them. Uh, Jim Clark won the 1968 uh, first Grand Prix that season, I should say, uh, South Africa. Um, but obviously, sadly, his death in Hockenheim had really... It hit the world hard because Graham Hill had to lead the team on from that point. It was a very difficult um, a very difficult championship to continue after that. Um, and it was a very, the team was very much demotivated after that. But Graham Hill was able to keep their spirits up. You know, exemplary drives and a brilliant mechanic as well. You know, there was a few races in particular where he'd often come out of the car, get a spanner out and repair his car. I think Belgium was one of those, the spark plug issue. Refit. I'd love to see that happen these days. What's that, a driver come out and uh, yeah, work on their car probably. halfway through? Yeah, possibly, yeah, it would be interesting. I mean, you can imagine Kimi Raikkonen doing something like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it'd be like the steering wheel thing all over again. It's yeah. like, tell him to give it to me. Yeah, I mean, they, they wanted to replace the Lotus 49 with the Lotus 63, which was meant to follow it midway through the 1969 season, but that car itself turned out to be a failure, and they decided to improve the... 49 as the, with a 49C version and they just pressed on with it until a suitable car could be built and it took until the 1970s for that to happen with the Lotus 72 during the 1970 season uh, and, and it continued to race even then into 1971 so Wilson Fittipaldi finished ninth in the 1971 Argentine Grand Prix and Tori Trimner finishing 6th in Alton Park and that was the last time that car really made its it's uh well it had its curtain razor there. Interesting enough, of the twelve forty nines built, seven of them still remain. So we're talking fifty years. Still got seven of those cars. Um, I think the I think I did see one. Uh, I think the last of the nineteen sixty seven cars still exists on display in the National Museum, a uh, National Motor Museum in Hampshire. So if you're around, guys, do definitely check that out. It's still there on to see, and it's a beautiful car and it's designed very elegant. Um, and it's a great piece of Formula 1 history. Definitely one of the pioneers of the Formula 1 paddock. Uh, most of the cars that you see today really much inspired on that design. And it was a brilliant car. Many legendary drivers, and of course, we needless to say, Emerson Fittipaldi, the final world champion in 1970 in the Lotus. I don't know what much more I can say to do that car justice, but I would say definitely check that out. It's a beautiful car. And of course, it went to the red and gold design when they, uh, when a private uh, cigarette company obviously had sponsorship, and, and sponsorships like that were very, very different then. They were very unheard of. Title sponsors, you see them everywhere in Formula One. Almost every team's got a title sponsor now that influences its livery design. And yeah. Lotus were one of the first back then. I won't name the cigarette company for obvious reasons, but they signed that agreement. And yeah, that, and I think the rest is history on that car. I definitely recommend checking it out. It weighed five hundred kilograms as well. I mean, that's literally a toaster in Formula One. Well, considering the cars weigh up to 800 kilos more and how much that weighed, it was just laid bare. There was no bodywork on it. It was literally just the monocoque area and then you had all the gearbox and engine stuff exposed at the back. It was so great to see. It's a shame you can't see that now. Yeah, they were very different compared to what they're like today. Completely different. 
No was carbon a... fibre back then. Definitely no, definitely no carbon fibre back in those days. So, um, moving on to the next car, and I think this one might resonate with a few of you guys for some obvious reasons, but I'm going to talk about the McLaren M26, which, for those of you that don't know, or not hardcore Formula 1 fans, this is the car that featured in the film Rush, starring Chris Hemsworth. Um, the story of the 1976 Formula 1 World Championship between Nicky Lauda the late Nicky Lauda, and uh, James Hunt as well, who was the champion that season. Give it a watch, it was a good film. It's a very good film. I'll tell you what, in terms of sports films, they always have difficulties, especially when they're trying to be adaptations. And I I will go out a limb on saying this, but I don't think I've seen a film um, that covers a sporting event uh, a non-fiction sporting event in such great detail and coverage yeah. since Moneyball, which was based on the uh, baseball team, the Angels, back in, uh, I think it was the 90s or something like that. The one with Brad Pitt and Jonah Hill. Really good. That was a really good film, Moneyball. Definitely recommend watching that. But Rush, definitely the best sporting film since that, in my opinion. And it's by far one of the best racing films. Um, it... it you know, I mean, there was great racing films I've seen in the past, like Senna, but that was like a biopic more than anything else. This one's a really good film. It's really good storytelling yeah. as well. And 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 also, I didn't really because um, usually with sporting movies, you do pick up on bias, but I thought that they reflected both characters really well. Yes, absolutely, they did. There was no obviously the film was centered around the story of James Hunt's success, but there's a lot of people, myself included, that would resonate very heavily with Nicky Lauder and in a way yeah. exemplifies his legend in his own right as to why Nicky was so great and why a lot of people, you know, we'll talk about James Hunt in such a good light, his racing driver. He's a fantastic racing driver, but I think for me, with Nicky's story, as a part of that story, um, it just showed all of Nicky's strengths in how he may not have been the most popular guy at the time in the paddock. There were a lot of people that weren't on his side for a lot of reasons, um, I won't go into too many, but some of them still exist today with some other current Formula One drivers for those reasons. But um, Nicky's skills were legendary, and this M26, arguably, despite the fact it's one of my favourite cars, probably shouldn't have won the World Championship. Um, it was obviously under some extreme circumstances in 1976 in the final race of the season in Japan where Nicky was driving in the Ferrari after previously dominating the championship and of course he had his big accident at the Nordschleife at the Nürburgring when they used to drive around the full circuit rather than the uh, modified version that's used today a much shortened safer version where he had the big accident which nearly took his life thankfully didn't and he was obviously able to live very long until he passed away last year, sadly. And of course, the police sirens would choose now. You think? Yeah, they, very after that much. You think they wouldn't be around very often, but no, they still make an appearance around here. Just wait for that one to go by. Sorry, guys. Nothing I've done, but you know. Anywho, so um, yeah, if you can hear some other noises of people shouting in the background, guys, I think my neighbours are having a bit of a fun. It's a lovely. Sunny evening in the UK. I think it's the hottest day of the year so far, and they're in their garden having a good time. So don't worry, they're all respecting social distancing there and having a good time anyway. Anyway, nonetheless, so yeah, we were talking about this uh, car in particular, the M26 McLaren. As I was saying, it, it was a car that was introduced back in the 90, uh, 1973. So this was another car that didn't um, start for a season, it was there for quite a few years. 
Again, another car with such an illustrious driver lineup. I'll run through some of the names as well. So you've got Denny Hume, Peter Revson, Yoko Mass, Mike Hallward, of course, Emerson Fittipaldi as well. Yeah, with, won it, yeah he won it in 74, um, right? That's right, 1974. And this was that was yeah. also the year McLaren won the Constructors' Championship. And, of course, James Hunt winning it in 1976. Made his debut in the South African Grand Prix of 1973. This one... 83 races, 16 wins, 14 pole positions, 10 fastest laps. So not as formidable as some of the other cars on our list, but was still a very, very strong car. I mean, bear in mind, this McLaren M26 came into an era in 1973, which was massively dominated by Lotus and Tyrrell in particular. particular, The Lotus 72 um, was one of the best cars ever dominated the most part of the early 1970s. Tyrrell was very, very strong as well. BRM was very strong. Ferrari had its moments, of course. Nicky Lauda winning the 1975 World Championship that year and should have won in 76, but obvious reasons he didn't. Um, It was introduced in the 1973 season. It scored pole position on its first outing with Denny Holm in South Africa. Um, Him and Peter Revson took three wins between them that season. And, of course... Jody Schechter, another driver that actually um, nearly added a fourth win in that McLaren. I forgot to include Jody Schechter, the 1979 world champion. Only South African world champion as well, for those of you interested. And get this, Corny. He was, it was, the reason why it didn't happen is because uh, at a British Grand Prix, he was responsible for one of the biggest accidents Formula 1 has ever seen. If you haven't seen this, guys, definitely check it out. It's really dangerous. He spun his M23 in front of the pack. Um... And it caused an absolutely huge pile-up. Thankfully, it was... Well, I won't go into too much details. It's not one for the faint-hearted. I would say give it a, give it a watch. But, of course, that's because I, I usually watch these sorts of things. Maybe that says more about me than... Um, I'm, I'm trying to clock whether I've, I've seen this. You might have seen this, but not... I mean, there's a lot of different videos, a lot of con- conflicting headlines to it to try and trigger people in and sometimes it doesn't paint the full picture but if you are curious definitely check it out um i'll let you make your own minds on this one although perhaps it's a bit of a risk me actually telling you to look at it but um yeah yeah watch with caution guys yeah um yeah so yeah as i said it was successful in 1974 with when emerson fittipaldi did join mclaren from lotus in 1974 um, and he used his great knowledge of driving the Lotus 72 to help McLaren develop that car and that season. Uh, and he gave it their first, McLaren's first ever Drivers and Constructors Championships that season, beating Ferrari and Tyrrell and Lotus as well, which was great for them. Um, it, it was a car where McLaren really had a difficult time in Formula 1. Had a lot of difficulties when they first came into the sport. I mean, people look at the McLaren story... Um, as a massive success uh, of course they talk about the late and legendary Bruce McLaren the founder who had won McLaren's first ever Grand Prix in 1968 in Belgium and it was a massive struggle for McLaren it was definitely a step-by-step process when they built a few cars back in the 60s I mean just looking at some of the illustrious models that they have like the M7 in 1968 which Bruce won his first championship in um, and they continued into the late 60s. But obviously, Tyrrell, the Tyrrells uh, that Jackie Stewart was driving um, was just way too quick for them. Yeah. And then obviously they had the M14 in 1970 that, 
Again, it started well the season, but it just deteriorated over time. So there was a lot of lessons McLaren had to take from these cars. And then in 1972, um, they had better fortunes in there. And the M19 from McLaren was a much better car than the M14. And they just took these lessons bit by bit. And then, of course, it came the M26 and the M23, these cars. And they just really blew the field away, particularly in 1974 when Emerson Fittipaldi was driving. And what I really liked about this car, maybe it's something with me that it's kind of a bit of a nostalgia trip for me, and especially the Rush film definitely helps to that. But it's just that sense where the car itself, it just proved to be a real handful and it changed variations over time. But there's just that sort of nostalgia feel to it, that romantic side of it, that just yeah. exonified British engineering with the M23. Um, I should say, actually, I do realise, actually, earlier on in the broadcast, I did say it was the M26. We're actually covering the M23. The M26 came after that in the 77. So I do apologise, guys. If I did say the M26, I'm actually How covering the M23. Oh, no, my notepad has failed me. Oh, no. I will not forgive you for this. Oh, well, never mind. I'm not re-recording this all again. That's just long. <laughs> yeah, don't you dare. <laughs> Roll credits. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> but I think, yeah, the M23, the final evolution of it in 1976, James Hunt made very, very famous. And this is what people will remember more about it. Um... The extended, you know, they had so many different nose profiles on it that really worked for it in front of the rear. Uh, obviously, the aero kickups in front of the rear wheels, the extended bodywork and the front of the rear wheels, and it just had some real grunt about it. Um, it, it was one of those cars where you can look at the Ferrari, um, the 312T chassis on the Ferrari that it just, that you know, the elegance Ferrari, Ferrari always have, you know, stuff that resonates with it, and McLaren was definitely pure British engineering, stuff that we hadn't seen since Lotus's domination. And McLaren finally started to get to grip over this long process with the previous cars, the M14, the M7, the M19, that didn't really work out for. All those bits together to come up with the M23, and it was a real powerhouse. And in a way, I do feel that this car, as much as I like the look of it, perhaps we wouldn't be talking about it if James Hunt didn't win the world championship in it. A lot of people, yeah. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people don't remember Fittipaldi's excellence in '74, and of course, he come runner-up in '75 to Nicky Lauda. So it is a legendary car. Won two world championships, and I sometimes maybe I don't do it a disservice, but there, it's just it's a bit more than just a car that won two world championships. I mean, it's certainly more than a lot of cars on these lists. But I think the best way to really enjoy it in its beauty, go back and watch those videos of James Hunt and also watch the Rush film as well. I mean, I can endorse that film to the cows come home, but it's definitely a great example of British engineering, un- the underdog story um, with this car, and it was able to come across that might, that combinations of Lauda and Ferrari, where it re- and, you know, having a driver like James Hunt in itself is almost like a highlight reel. Um, he had the... Uh... He had the British kind of celebrity swagger about him, James Hunt. Yeah, I mean, a, a great interview that a lot of people involved in Formula 1 will know about this car in particular that James Hunt was famous for was that interview with the late Sterling Moss, who I'll probably take this opportunity to 
send my condolences to his family at this time. Obviously, we lost him last week. Uh, very legendary Formula One driver, 16-time race winner, arguably the greatest driver to never win a world championship since Sterling Moss, but he was definitely a champion through and through. Um, and, and the Formula One world is certainly going to miss him. That's for sure. But he had this great interview with James Hunt where he asked him about what does it take to drive these cars back in 1976 and he just said, big balls. <laughs> Simple as that. <laughs> and and they certainly did to drive these cars, I will say that much. But yeah, the M23 McLaren definitely definitely won for the Legend Books. And it's at the McLaren Technology Centre in Wokins for those. The CC who have gone on a tour, definitely make sure to check that out. It was definitely a great car. And one for the ages. You can go on like a a classic F1 tour tour. <laughs> I'd love to, I'd on, love to go on one of those. Go from Hampshire to Woking. That's yeah, it. That's that. it. Hampshire to Woking. Take it off the bucket list. Go to the Williams uh, headquarters as well. You know, so many great plates. So many great Formula One tours you can go on in some of these factories and a lot of these f1 teams based in britain they do actually do tours of their factories if you're ever interested so if you've you know obviously when this situation with covid19 improves that we can all start going out again and having good days out i definitely recommend for you hardcore formula one fans go to those factories go to milton Keynes, check out the red bull one go to brackley go you can see the aston martin one well racing point which will become aston martin but we'll talk about the developments going on there in a future episode as well just keep an eye on the time in this one because it's uh very quickly approaching eight o'clock in the evening when we're recording this, and obviously it's a Thursday, so we obviously we're gonna make sure that we're gonna pause this when near eight o'clock and then clap for our NHS staff who probably take the opportunity to say, you know, thank you guys. If you are NHS staff and you're listening to this, we just want to thank you so much for all the work you're doing and stay safe and keep fighting the good fight, really. And hopefully, the situation improves now. I'm glad that they actually, the world is actually, or this country is actually starting to take notice of the great work that these people do for literally zero gain. Oh, yeah. So, um, moving on to the next car now. I'm going to... It's a bit of a toss-up for me because of how great these two cars were. I'm trying to think of... It's hard for me to split them, which... I'm, you know what? I'm going to do one before the other. I have to do one before the other, obviously. Um, but it's really hard for me to split these two because... Equally in their own rights, they have a very good claim to be considered the greatest Formula One car of all time. But I'm going to start with this one first. So, the Ferrari F2002. Obviously, no prizes for guessing what season that competed in in 2002. Driven by Michael Schumacher, Rubens Barrichello for Ferrari. I mean, it's gorgeous. In every single way. This was the car that gave Michael Schumacher his fourth Drivers World Championship. It was the second year. The partnership between himself and Rubens Barrichello. I mean, the, the records of this car was in, immense. I mean, the most fastest laps in a single season, 15. Um, 11 pole positions. 15 Grand Prix wins. In 16 races in the 2002... Sorry, 17 races of the 2002 season. Um, can you guess the two races and drivers that actually won Grand Prix in that year, Courtney? Oh, so other than I'm going to go for Montoya. Yes, yeah, so Montoya won uh, at the end of the season. Um, yeah. The last, the other one was in Monaco, 2002. Do you know who won that race? Oh, 
no, I can't. I can't think of anyone else. So it was uh, David Coulthard. Who, um, yeah, yeah, brilliant drive from David. He um, ended up finishing a second ahead of Michael Schumacher. So him and Schumacher, for most of that race, particularly in the second half, were having their own little Senna Mansell battle back in like they had in Monaco back in the day. Um, I mean, yeah, this it was staggering. I mean, we talked about in last week's episode. We talked about the McLaren MB4-4. The F2002 was the first car that come anywhere close to doing what they did. And in a lot of ways, they took that bar and ran with it even further. It was so impressive. I mean, compared to the F2001, which was impressive in its own right, um, it was much lighter than its predecessor. It was powered by a 3-litre V10 engine, which had a very low centre of gravity. It was so good. It had excellent handling. I mean, we'll talk about other cars being mighty and quick but this car handled beautifully I mean a good example of this ironically was when Michael Schumacher won the world championship in France where he was literally wiggling the car like crazy across the line and in a normal Formula 1 car you do that you're going to spin it out but this car was so agile Ferraris were always known for two things being very agile and being very powerful in the engine department and when the two mixed together it was an absolute dream I mean I'm going to read a list of the people involved in the actual designer car. To suit, I mean, you had Ross Braun, technical director, Rory Byrne, chief designer, one of the best designers of a Formula One car ever, Aldo Costa, head of design and working in the engine department, Nicholas Tombasis was the head of aerodynamics, another great aerodynamicist, uh, Rob Smedley was even involved, uh, so Rob Smedley and even James Allison was involved in the on-track mechanics and des- and designs of this car. So when we talk about James Allison, the success he's doing in Mercedes now, and obviously his time at Ferrari, he was heavily involved on the F2002 in his earlier days back then. Um, it's such an amazing car. One of the best-sounding Formula 1 cars I've ever heard. That V10 engine producing 900 brake horsepower. It was so fuel-efficient and very drivable. It was literally the perfect car. Um... I'm I'm not wrong in saying this either. Uh, I saw something interesting the other day when having a little bit of research more on this car. Um, it was using the Pomery Index system, um, and obviously I'm not going to explain what that is because that's quite complicated to actually explain it in simple terms, and I struggle with that in the best of times. Um, Motorsport Magazine did use this system, and they recently determined that the F2002 is the fastest Formula 1 car of all time. In, according to this index, take that for whatever uh, value you like. Um, the Ferrari, you know, I mean, compared to other cars in time, you know, that we talked about Mercedes last week, some of their cars, the F2004 Ferrari, um, as a direct comparison, it, it achieved better qualifying lap times um, at 12 of the tracks than the F2002, but the race pace was absolutely mighty. In this car, I'm not wrong in saying it. it was just a beautiful piece of engineering and machinery, and it just looks so good. I mean, this was definitely, in my opinion, one of the greatest cars of all time. I don't think I'm wrong in saying I'm a big Ferrari fan, and I get goosebumps thinking about these cars. But you, can, you, can, you can sort of sense the enthusiasm when you talk about it. Do you know what? I mean, I, I almost feel a bit silly for almost not including this in the list because it was a toss-up between including this or a different car and I thought you know what I'm going to include this as well I mean I had to at the end I feel almost a bit silly for not doing it um 
But well, no, the two, two, the 2004, um, Schumacher had wrapped it up by Spa, hadn't they? Yeah, he did. Um, and, and in this championship, he wrapped it up in France. And this is, the, I believe I'm yeah. right in saying this to a degree, and I apologise if I'm not. Do feel free to correct me, guys out there listening, if I'm not. But this F2002 wrapped up the championship, the Drivers' Championship, in the fastest time. I don't think anybody had done it faster than Michael Schumacher had done it after 11 races into a 16 Grand Prix season. It's just incredible. Um, and, and Ferrari had done a lot of work in the 90s. I mean, we talk about Schumacher winning seven world championships. There's a very good argument that Michael could have easily got to 10. He could have done it. I mean, I mean, we talk about Lewis Hamilton, how great he's been and what the cars he's had. And I think in some ways, you know, there's always going to be that argument to compare the two. But in some ways, as impressive as Michael's seven titles, he could have easily won 10. If it weren't for 99 when he broke his leg, the, the, Ferrari, you know, the Ferrari in 1999 um, was, in my mind, was the fastest car on the grid. It was just because, and no disrespect to Eddie Irvine, but I mean, McLaren were very close. But you saw that towards the end of the season, how fast that car was when Schumacher had come back. And obviously that yeah. transferred into the F2000 that won the championship the year later. Um and they'd used the same concept design for the long time in the 90s. And of course, they decided to replace the gearbox in this car, which made it ultra lightweight, higher strength titanium. It reduced the weight by much as 15% and lowered the car's center of gravity, which really contributed to having that compact design and great achievement and bodywork. And it increased the aerodynamic efficiency of the rear. And that was such a big thing back in those days, considering how the rules were. Um, so I guess what followed from that season was just total domination for Ferrari. We already talked about the one fifteen out of the sixteen races that year, with the exception of Monaco. Um, I mean, it was literally a mirror image of the nineteen eighty eight season that McLaren dominated so much. I mean, Schumacher had got eleven wins that year, Barrichello four himself. Um, the only race they failed to win was at Monaco, while the F two thousand one didn't take the Malaysian Grand Prix in that race as well. That was the the race Montoya had won. And uh, Schumacher himself finished every race on the podium, never finishing lower than second with the F2002. I mean, that's crazy. Can you imagine that? Never finishing a race le- lower than second in a single season. You see, you sometimes forget that some of these records are actually set. Like, yeah. That's a limit, isn't it? Like, that's, you can't... I mean, that's yeah, just yeah. crazy. I mean, could you imagine going into a race? I mean, we talk about how dominant Mercedes have been, how dominant Red Bull were, but that, that year in particular for Ferrari, you literally, when it all came together, and in Michael Schumacher at the peak of his powers, you you look at that as a driver. Even if you're Barry Kello, his teammate, you just think, how the hell am I going to beat Michael today? He's a completely different beast in that machinery and it, and it did coincide yes a lot of people said this was the boring era of, of Ferrari's domination because the, you know 2003 by contrast was so much more exciting obviously because of the battle between Schumacher Raikkonen um, and, and Williams as well in that mix as well with McLaren it was just a complete contrast but 2002 was just sheer domination like the likes which we'd never seen from one particular driver I don't think we've ever seen domination like that ever, and I'd be go a long way to see that again. Um, I mean, Ferrari themselves scored. I mean, we talked about in previous years, I should say, when before I say this stat because this is an amazing statistic. We talked last week about 
McLaren having more points than some of the other teams left in the championship that 1988 season. How about this for a stat, Courtney? Let's see if how much it blows your mind. But in the 2002 season, Ferrari, as a constructor, scored as many points as the rest of the teams in the championship put together. 221. And this, right. yeah, this was the points tally back in, and these were the points that were awarded back in uh, the early 2000s, which was like 10 for a win. Uh, I think it was still yes, six right. for second place back then. I mean, that is incredible. What does that statistic yeah. do? <laughs> Most of them must have thought no point in showing up. No, it literally was. Uh, to some people's minds, it just... I mean, it was so good that Ferrari decided not to develop the car after the Belgian Grand Prix in the summer. And they were still significantly ahead of the field for the rest of the season. I mean, Schumacher and Barrichello were criticised criticized for swapping finishes in uh, Austria and the United States and for those of you that were familiar with this team orders were very rife for Ferrari during those times to help Schumacher win championships so we see that a lot in Formula 1 even now um, we oh, joke about the old Valtteri yeah we joke about the old Valtteri it's James comments and stuff like that or Fernando is faster than you back in 2010 in Germany um but this is when team orders was really getting a bad rep. And in 2001, the year before, that was the famous race in Austria where Barrichello had a contract that he was about to sign and was ordered to let Michael Schumacher pass on the very last lap. And he let Michael pass him across the line. And it was met by a lot of boos from the crowd. And Michael himself was so disappointed, he had no idea what was going on. He, at the time, thought Rubens had a problem, was going slow, and Schumacher crossed the line, almost to a point where he slowed down himself, but was then told, no, you have to win this race. And he ended up swapping positions with Rubens on the podium, if you remember that moment. I remember that, yeah. Um, a year later, the exact same thing happened again. Rubens dominated the race. Um, and, the, you know, Schumacher was a lot closer to him, but once again, Ferrari ordered Rubens to let Michael free for the championship. And this one was even worse because this one was completely unnecessary, considering how dominant Ferrari were. I mean, at this point, excluding Monaco, Michael had won nine races in a row in that seat this season. Um, and it was just ridiculous. And of course, United States Grand Prix as well. Uh, this was the race as well where they tried to orchestrate the grandstand finish, if you remember, Courtney, with the Ferraris coming across the line together. And I don't know, oh, if, yeah. I don't oh, know yeah. if Michael Schumacher had made the mistake on this or if this was actually what was meant to happen. But he'd led the race in US in, when they were racing in Indianapolis. Um, and he'd slowed down to such a degree across the line where Rubens had actually overtaken him across the line by a tenth of a second to win that race. As I said... It might have been payback for what happened in Austria, but in a weird, strange way, we could be talking about Michael Schumacher with 92 Grand Prix wins if it weren't for this. So, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I mean, as I said, we I can't tell if it was orchestrated to be like that. I mean, I thought it would have been Schumacher slow down with Rubens just behind him. Um, but yeah, it was quite amusing to see Ruben's name come up first on the classification sheet. When it was, I did remember watch that race and I laughed my head off because it looked like I saw what they were trying to do, and then Ruben's come across first, and it just seemed quite funny to see that. Um, 
the F2002B, which was the B-spec version of this car that they raced in the early stages in 2003, it had four Grand Prix. So even then, it's funny how we talk about Formula 1 cars back in yesteryear where they had like four or five different versions of cars going to race to race. But they were very, very... Uh, it was very difficult for a lot of teams to actually get their new cars ready. You used to see, I don't know if you remember, Courtney, you used to see a lot of cars, they say, oh, their new car's not available at the start of the season, they're going to race the old car for a couple of years when the rules were a lot more relaxed. They didn't change that often. And, or if they did, it was little things where they could put onto the previous car. And this car raced four races. This is why when you ever look at the stats, it says 19 rather than uh, 16. So yeah, sorry, three races that season, I should say, before the F2003 GA took over um and the it was still winning races in the 2003 season schumacher's last win was at the san marino grand prix in the f2002 in 2003 so teams were still developing their cars for the 2003 season and they still weren't able to catch up to the 2002 ferrari which hadn't been developed they were yeah, it's crazy. I mean, we see stuff like this like now, but this was an absolute masterpiece. Rory Byrne was on top of his game. Ross Braun at the helm. It was absolutely incredible. And Ferrari, despite their dominance with this car, I think a lot of people will go far, uh, go a long way in saying that this is arguably the best car that Ferrari has ever produced. Um, oh, quite easily. Very, you know, considering its sheer domination. Yeah. Um, and in a weird way, it was quite surprising that Ferrari produced a car so good and then the 2003 car, by comparison, was nowhere near as dominant as the 2002 car. I mean, it was an improvement, but the step forward other teams had made, um, and I think we should probably put into light that the, the teams back in 2002, by comparison, were nowhere near Ferrari and they could have done a better job, but it was quite surprising how Ferrari went from a 2002 car that they were so good, changed it a little bit to 2003, and they had so many flaws, almost as if they rested on their laurels. It just goes to show sometimes how that can happen. Yeah, well, it happens for places you can kick in. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Um, and I think with this 2002 car, for me, it's one of my all-time favourite cars. It's a real toss-up between that car and the car which I'm about to talk about. For obvious reasons, but it was a, the sheer level of dominance he had. It was unprecedented, and I can't think of many that could hold a candle to it when you consider the all-time greats. It's definitely up there. Which brings me on to my final car, um, the F2004. Probably not a surprise for you, Courtney, for me to say that car. Oh, uh, this was... Because I, I, I remember... Because I well, when, when did we start secondary school? Uh, 2003, it was. So it was around that time, wasn't it? And I, I just remember you just being in love with the bloody Schumacher Ferrari combo. It was a beautiful time for me, uh, growing up in school. Um, that Ferrari dominance, obviously been a Ferrari fan for 25 years now, since I've been watching Formula 1, always been a Ferrari fan. Um, with Michael Schumacher, with Michael Schumacher's golden years, and obviously I've had to suffer a lot of heartache and misery since 2007, where Kimi Raikkonen won his Ferrari's final drivers' championship. Of course, we had constructors' championship in 2008, um, where Massa was champion for about 30 seconds until Lewis Hamilton's famous overtake on Timo Glock. Yeah, it was a, that was a difficult race for me to watch. I have fond memories of 
Lewis's success. But at the time, that was a very hard one for me to watch to the end as a Ferrari fan. <laughs> Probably not so much for you, Courtney. I imagine your house was being flipped upside down in absolute bedlam. Oh, well, Enjoy. Know, I remember, because I, I remember watching that a lot. I was, I was on the sofa, I was just jumping out. Go on, my son. Go on, my son. <laughs> it was one of those where, even before the commentators said the famous, like Martin Brudel saying, is that Glock, is that Glock? I saw it was Glock coming down the hill and I was like, no, no, no. Because I realised what had happened and then it was like, oh my God, it's all over. I, like you, Literally, the camera cut after Mass across the line and we I'm thought, that's it. No, I, I knew straight away who it was because I was watching the timing sheets and because he had them dry tyres on a wet circuit. Still, there are some, yeah. still, some people still think that that was fixed. I don't understand how how they can have that opinion. I mean, don't get me wrong. Oh, you that Formula One fans, though. Glock was going uncharacteristically slow under the conditions, but the conditions were changing so quickly um, from dry to wet running. It caught Lewis out for a long time until the tyres went into his own. That's why I went in, earlier in that race, Sebastian Vettel in the Toro Rosso passed him because Lewis was yeah. on the wrong tyres and then the tyres came back to him at the very last moment. You know, all that into a equation, you could see why. I mean, it was dramatic as it was. People would think, oh, how has that happened? That's not right. That's good. And their partnership that they had in GP2. Yeah, 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 I get that. But if you could prove categorically that Timo Glock deliberately... Um, slowed down on purpose to let Lewis Hamilton through along the same lines as proving that Nico Rosberg back in 20 was it 15 that he, he scraped Lewis Hamilton's tyre to give him that puncher in Belgium then oh, 2014 yeah 2014 excuse me then yeah. you might as well just give him the world championships for those pieces of driving because that's just the, yeah. you know that's how I get everyone loves a conspiracy theory but no Lewis won that on merit um uh, and I'm happy. I don't mind saying that as a Ferrari fan, but I'm a Formula One fan first and foremost, and I only care about seeing the best driver on the day. And that was Lewis's day, you know. So that that's how it goes. Anyway, moving back to the F2004. I mean, this is probably arguably the only car in my mind, other than the McLaren 198 uh, MP4-4, that really holds challenges the F2002 as being considered the greatest Formula 1 car of all time and that includes even the modern cars that's my opinion maybe it's a nostalgia thing and I don't give the Mercedes cars enough credit but I feel that the competition um, was blown away so much more in these cars and perhaps Mercedes in a way holding back because of how dominant they were and perhaps the nature of the rules Formula 1 was more about fuel efficiency and conservation that prevented Mercedes from really letting those cars loose to see what they could really do I mean we're talking about cars that in last week's episode we talked about the W05 that dominated certain Grand Prix by half a minute to 40 seconds running in lean fuel mixes and saving fuel where they could have carried carried on for another half an hour because they still had that much fuel we never really got to see what they could do these cars of yesteryear, they were able to go flat out, and you could see how much they blitz the competition. But I mean, the two thousand four F two thousand four, another brainchild of Rory Byrne, Aldo Costa, John Eilly was involved this time. Aerodynamics is very good as well. Ross Braun again playing that vital role in the production of the car as the team's technical director. Paolo Martinelli was uh, leading the engine design. Very very influential figure was uh, the mentor for uh, Matthias Binotto who's now the uh, leader at Ferrari right now, you know. So Ma- Matteo Bonotto was very much involved in the engine program at Ferrari. There's a very good interview that Michael does where he shows people around the Ferrari 
uh, garage on a race weekend and there's a good part where he's having a chat and he finds Matteo Bonotto working on some bits in the garage and Matteo Bonotto's not got the curls or even the glasses I think he was wearing contacts that his day but he didn't have those famous glasses that he wears like the Harry Potter type glasses so you can, it's hard to recognise him but then you hear him talking you thought wow that, that man is going to be the Ferrari boss in uh, 15 years time little did me know but the F2004 was a, a massive upgrade on the F2003 and there was a lot of good bits about the F2003 I mean I'll talk about it as like a bit of a flat note compared to the F2002 but it, w- it was a car that won both world championships that year as well so we can't really knock it but the F2004 uh, was the final car in Ferrari's five-year domination six if you count the Constructors' Championship I mean people forget that Mercedes have won six Constructors' Championships in a row but that's not an outright record Ferrari did that between 1999 and 2005. Sorry, 2004, excuse me. Yeah, so they won six Constructors' Championships, and this was the final one, Michael's fifth championship in a row in the drivers, and his final World Championship of his career. Again, this was one of the most dominant cars in the history of Formula 1. It And, yeah, it, it was the car that, that really personified this don- domination of any years, and we were talking about the F2002, but this was really the one that really took some beats, and it took a massive amount of rule changes to really knock Ferrari off the perch. Of course, a lot of credit to um, Fernando Alonso and Renault winning their first championship in 2005. They did a brilliant job, but this really prompted the rule changes to really change the sport and change the way that uh, Formula 1 was going, because Ferrari were just running away with everything, kind of like Mercedes are now. This car was based that's on. What they do, though, don't they? That, that, that's, that's what they do. They change the regulations, stop the team from dominating too much. Yeah, I mean, try as they might. I mean, all these teams have their periods of domination. I mean, Lotus dominated the early seventies. McLaren had their period of the late eighties um, and late nineties as well. Ferrari have had periods in their history where they dominate. Most notably, ninety nine to two thousand and four. Um, Red Bull twenty ten to twenty thirteen, and Mercedes now twenty fourteen to today. It, the aim of these rule changes on this structure is to try and shake up the pack yeah. and stop a team dominating. And, yeah, they do work eventually. I mean, Mercedes now dominating the sport in the manner that they are. It will go eventually. I mean, there have been times where it should have finished. Ferrari should have at least won one of 2017 or 2018 in Sebastian Vettel's hands. Perhaps more 2018, considering he had that in his pack. He had the car and he had everything and he just completely bottled it to some degree, especially after Germany in 2018. So, you know, and, and it doesn't do much dis- It doesn't do much credit to a team like a Mercedes when they dominate that. And I think the biggest part of their success is the fact that they're able to adapt to the rule changes. And Ferrari did this a lot as well. I mean, 2010 to 2013, there wasn't a massive overhaul of changes. Red Bull got on top of the 2009 regulations halfway through Braun's success that season yeah, and right. really ran away with it. In yeah. the same way that Ferrari in 1999, after McLaren had won in 98 in convincing fashion, had done a lot of work in 99. And there's a very good argument that, in my mind, that Ferrari, if Michael Schumacher hadn't broken his leg at Silverstone in 99, could have won that world championship as well. He was leading the championship before that incident and he was dominant when he came back. And it was all centred around Eddie Irvine. And Mika Hakkinen did a fantastic job to win that championship. But you could argue Ferrari could have won that championship. Drivers won as well. 
if it not for that. But back to the two, F2004, it was an upgrade on the 2002 car. It was a combination of the best bits between the two. Um, they had to just redesign the gearbox in this car. It had to be a lot more resilient. And the rear end, end, uh, rear end aerodynamics, that's a bit of a tongue twister, was improved. And it featured a much shorter wheelbase. So it was even more agile than the F2002, which was unprecedented considering... This car was equally dominant. It won 15 out of the 18 races it competed in. It scored 12 pole positions, including many lap records, which still exist today. I think kind of, I think there's four lap records that still exist, despite the incredible improvements um, to Formula 1 cars. And you see now the modern cars, Courtney, that exist today in 2017 beyond, since the big rule changes there where the cars have changed so much, where there's lap records galore because of the increase in aero and speeds and yeah, everything else. Right. Yeah. There's still four active racetracks where uh, this car is still holds the fastest lap. Actually, no, sorry, tell a lie. Um, so I'm just looking at this now. I did make a note on this. So there are six tracks that are still used on the Formula 1 Canada now that were used back in 2004. Quite a change. Um, and the three of them in particular... Uh, the, the F2004 still has the fastest lap. It still has the fastest lap at Melbourne. It still has the fastest lap at the uh, German Grand Prix at the Nürburgring. Um, it also has the fastest lap at Monza and at Shanghai as well and at Manicor. So those six tracks, uh, it still has the fastest lap and three of those are still used on the calendar. Obviously Melbourne, Shanghai and Monza. The F2004 still has the outright fastest lap, which... I mean, that's incredible. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, I think 16 years on. Yeah, I mean, it's I mean, it's the sound of this car as well. I'm not going to lie. I, for me, this is the most... This is my favourite sounding car I think I've ever driven. If anyone's driven the F1 2019 game, this is one of the cars that features on this. And I don't think I'm wrong in saying that when you watch it in replay mode, the actual sound is just deafening. It's so, so much better. I mean, I, no, I wish there was a way we could bring these V10s back. I'd even settle for the V8s. You know, they weren't too bad, were they, Colt? They weren't too bad. Yeah, they're okay. I mean, compared to the V6s. I mean, the V8s don't, didn't sound great under braking, I will admit. From the back, they just sounded like someone was throwing up. Um... But I'd settle for those over the V6s. I mean, I'm used to the V6 turbos now, and that's how Formula 1 is going to go. It's, that's just fuel efficiency. We're never going to get back yeah. to that era. But the V10 engines were just so good. And the F2004 in particular, the engine, I think it was like Model uh, 053, I think I'm right. Of the and, and, and I, don't know, I don't know if you noticed this, but like that's like the era that non-F1 fans comment but, on when they talk about Formula 1. Yeah. They always talk it's because of the sound. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. That is the sound. It's so funny. It reminds and me. I, of... I, I, I just get like low key offended. And like in my mind, like, they don't sound like that actually. Yeah. <laughs> they don't. Uh, like, I mean, def- I would love to play some like sounds on this, um, like from other clips on YouTube, but definitely have a look. Like V2, uh, sorry, not V2, V10. Uh, F2004 Ferrari engine just the sounds is just it's so good um, I mean it was powered by a it was a 3 litre engine back then V10 churned out around 950 brake horsepower at 19,000 RPM 
I mean, compared to the current cars that do around twelve to 14,000 at their best, these do 19,000. You can imagine the sound they made, how high-pitched it was. Um, again, it was a combination of Ross Braun, Rory Burns' designs. It was arguably one of the best cars I've ever seen. It, the main focus point was to reduce tyre wear and the rear suspension design on the F2003 GA. The problem with that car is that it just really struggled to run longer distances so they really have to compromise their pace but they got it right with the f2004 they were aware that despite winning the championship they thought it might be easy ride for them but they worked their absolute asses off to make this car brilliant um 13 wins in a season for michael schumacher um in that season won the championship in hungary again ridiculously early on uh, the only person that's matched Michael Schumacher's wins record in a season is Sebastian Vettel in 2013 in the Red Bull when he dominated that year, as we said earlier. But of course, there were more races in 2013 yeah. than there were. So obviously, Schumacher on average had more. Seven wins in a row between Nürburgring and Hungary. So not as impressive as the F2002 when Michael took nine in a row that year. Um, Barrichello only took two wins that season funny enough Courtney Barrichello said the only car he felt at Ferrari that really suited him more than Michael was the F2003 and he definitely fancied himself in that championship season but of course wasn't to be for him maybe uh, maybe um, Barrichello's better run well was better on the tyres yeah you know, you're absolutely right yeah it was just how it's just driving styles I mean Michael Schumacher's driving yeah. style used to make him go through tyres a lot more than Rubens. Exactly. Funny enough, in 2002, there was a, I think there was one Grand Prix, I can't remember where it was, where they had to have, all the teams had to have the same amount of tyres, and Schumacher went through so many, that in order to get around it, they gave him more tyres, but aggregated it over their drivers, so that Schumacher, that it'd work out that both drivers together would have the same number of tyres. There wasn't a rule that a driver had to have the same number of tyres, it was just the team. So Rubens didn't need that many tyres, so they just gave them all to Michael. Um okay just to get around it. I mean, you can call that, whether you call that foul play or not, but that's just the way the rules were. And the aim of Formula One teams is to get around them as best they can. And that was just one of the ways Ferrari were very good. I mean, Ferrari back then, we talk about them almost meme-like, that they make these silly strategy calls or make mistakes or bottle decisions or are too hesitant. They make so many errors. But back then, they were really on top of their game. Um, As I said, this this car broke so many... Re- records lap records um as i mentioned already um it, it was just it was something about this car that it was bulletproof as well i mean we talk about cars that were so reliable now i mean it's almost unheard of to see cars have these reliability issues to such a degree um now but back then retirements were very rife for reliability and i think i'm yeah. right this f2004 only suffered two retirements and they were f- collisions with other drivers they weren't mechanical problems as well um i mean rob smedley referred to it as the perfect car it was perfect blend of speed and engineering aerodynamics and reliability it literally was perfect in so many ways um, who knows if in Monaco where Schumacher had that collision early on in the race in 2004, which Jarno Trulli won. We mentioned Jarno Trulli in last week's episode. And I've got to correct this because I mentioned it was 2005, 2006. That's actually 2004 when he won that Monaco Grand Prix. See the old Trulli train in the Renault, full effect there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the can't get around the, uh, the Trulli train on the streets of Monaco. Yes, yeah. Um, and... 
it was yeah it was such a brilliant car i mean uh, interesting story because obviously there's a lot of stuff to go talk about this car and only so much time so i won't go on forever about this but i just wanted to take if i can guys i'm aware of the time of this episode and it's a long one but you know i think given the nature of this it's definitely worth worth your time so if you've hung with us for this long thank you very much and if you've tuned in in bits over a course of time then that's equally great so you know i appreciate that but just an interesting story about this car so when ferrari were during the winter after 2003 season obviously they'd celebrated winning both championships again but it was a real fight that they had with Kimi Raikkonen in particular who'd only lost out by two points and in a weird way there's a very strong argument to suggest that if that McLaren was a lot more reliable, Kimi could have won the World Championship that year. Yeah. I yeah. think that's fair in saying. He's, he was absolutely brilliant. He was at the peak of his powers, even better than he was when he won the World Championship yeah, in 2007. That, was, that, was, that definitely was peak Kimi Raikkonen. It really was. And, and this is why Kimi's remembered very, very fondly, not just for his antics in modern day on the radio that we hear a lot more. We never heard a lot of this before. I think the only time where... We heard Kimi Raikkonen um, in interviews, which made him famous, other than the old Finnish trait where they just say one or two word answers like Mika Hakkinen did before him. Um, you'd ask Mika a question and he'd just reply and go, yes. Like, that was it. <laughs> um, but Kimi, yeah, it was. Um, I remember in uh, Brazil when Pele, the footballer, was going to be waving the flag to send the drivers off and wave the chequered flag. And he was doing some skills on at the front just to entertain a Brazilian crowd and Martin Brundle went up to Kimi and said oh did you see Pele what did you think of that and then Kimi said oh sorry I was away I was taking a shit I missed it <laughs> on live on live television as Kimi Raikkonen so often does <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to I'm go- I'm gonna put I'm going to look for it it's there it's well known but I'll put it on there for you guys to so check that out um, I mean that's worth a like if anything other than the steering wheel comment as well but yeah, with Ferrari, they had a long winter and there was a lot of work they had to do with this F2004. They knew that the F2003, they were very, very fortunate to win the championship. The Constructors' Championship, they had that in the bag. But the Drivers' Championship, Michael Schumacher, very fortunate that year from Kimi Raikkonen and the McLaren. And they did a lot of work. And what happened was when they tested the F2004, obviously back then we didn't have pre-season testing like we do now. Um, the teams don't all get together. They used to have their own bases, own tracks. Ferrari famously used to use Fiorano, Maguello, uh, and even Imola, where they did the races. They were able to do testing there. And when they went there, it was a very interesting test because they did their runs on the simulation. And it was oh, to check out the aero and the dyno to do uh, to check out the engine they run the numbers as you do to try and get the performance and the story goes like this so the f2004's potential was very evident from the start and i'm quoting an article from autosport for those of you that aren't familiar um when i'm saying this i'm quoting it for them so they say the f2004's potential was evident from the start Following an encouraging run at Fiorano, it was taken to Imola, a more representative venue, because it was an active Grand Prix that season. It was so much faster than it had been predicted that the engineers were left shell-shocked. I remember uh, the at the first shakedown, we were doing lap times that didn't match our simulations, said uh, Baldisseri, one of the lead engineers on the car at the time. In those times, they were not so sophisticated simulations, but considered the ambient temperature, we were completely off, but in a good way. Everybody was saying we had to check that everything was okay and that we were on the weight limit. 
By the time the package for the opening race in Melbourne was added for a later Imola test, where rival teams were present, the car's pace was clear for all to see. It was mega. Rob Smedley recalls, We had the 2003 car, and then Michael jumped into the F2004. He got out of the car and had this massive smile, and he said, I'm telling you, it's real. We were saying it it can't be. We know what the aero numbers are. We know what the engine is. There's absolutely no way. And, I mean... In addition to this, it just goes on to say, the only time we went to Miguelo for testing and I was able to go flat out all through the Aribatia corners, it was just magic. Um, I mean, the car itself, to put this in perspective, how fast it was compared to the F2003, it was about one and a half seconds faster in qualifying trim. And this was... And usually, the rate of performance improvement... Like, we talk about testing this year. Um, Mercedes, I think, testing... They reckon it was around about of a second, seven tenths to a second in between that gap yeah. that you'd find improvements for most of the teams, and they found that this car in qualifying trim that we don't really see them do qualifying laps in um, that often in preseason testing now because of the sandbag and everything else. But they found one and a half seconds when they did, and that was one lap when they did the race stints. This was even more impressive, court. Like this was another thing which really made me giddy when I first saw this, but. In the beginning of a race stint, when they did, where they fueled the car up, it was one and a half seconds a lap faster as expected. By the end of the stint, the tyre wear was so good, they were ended up two to two and a half seconds a lap faster than the F2003. I mean, that's night and day. That's the difference between... Yeah. I mean... In this, in this, in this day and age, they'll take years to catch up. I mean, to put that in perspective, guys... The F2003, on average, if it's two to two and a half seconds a lap slower in race trim, that's the difference between being the fastest car and being the slowest. Not even the slowest car in today's Formula 1 is two and a half seconds a lap slower than the lead car in race trim. But, you know, back then, that just makes the 2003 winning Ferrari at the back of the field if everyone else improved at the same rate. It was just mental. Um, You know, and Ferrari in this car, the team was peak of its powers. Nigel Stepney, the famous technical manager during that time at Ferrari, um, you know, he he did an incredible job marshalling the mechanics, managing the team setup, managing the race setup with John Todd. We haven't mentioned John Todd, the leader of the FIA, was very heavily involved at Ferrari during Schumacher's dominance in a way... Definitely showed his skills at the helm there. Um, Aldo Costa said this car was the best in terms of reliability, and you know, there was a lot of development on that side. Process and methodologies they were all testing things, and it just all come together. It was, I mean, we talked about the F two thousand and two being a culmination of all of this coming together, like it was a perfect recipe. But the F two thousand and four was on a completely different scale. I don't think it's uh, unfair in me saying this, and. For me, it brings back the most fondest memories. This is why I put it up there. I mean, I know I've bored you guys a lot about the tech stuff, and I'm sure you know I appreciate you guys bearing with me on this. It's very difficult to try and really come across to you guys about how incredible some of these cars are when you talk about the technical elements and the, all of this stuff that come with it, especially if you're not really into cars. But the fact that you talk about these Ferraris in particular the F2002 and F2004, 
and the way that they dominated their respective championships, um, for me, it just hits home on what Formula One was about for me growing up. What really resonated with me as a Ferrari fan, you know, there was Mercedes fans will probably feel this way now, um, as we're Red Bull fans. But you look at particular cars, and Courtney picked out his favourite one of the favourites he had, the Mercedes W05, and how that car just blitzed the field and how it just shows a team at the pinnacle of their powers in a car that just you could not beat. You could probably stick me in a Ferrari F2004 at the time, and if I'd had a, you know, if I was at a relative level compared to Formula 1 drivers, obviously not me in real life, I'd get destroyed. I'd never be able to drive it to its capacity. But you could fancy... It was one of those where you could say, oh, my nan could drive that and she'd probably win a world championship. It was that good a car. And I think in a weird way, it's why a lot of people don't rate Michael Schumacher in the fact that these cars were so good. And in a way, I understand that, but you also got to argue that, well, if that car's so good, then, you know, the car just doesn't turn up to be good. There's driver input, there's all this other stuff, and it has to work towards the driver's abilities. This is why you see some cars like, Ferrari later on, I think I'm not wrong in saying, Courtney, between 2010 and 2012, you had Fernando Alonso dominating in a Ferrari to some degree compared to his teammates. Some cars just suit some drivers better than others, but the F2002 and F2004 in particular, I, I'm happy to go on saying I don't think I've ever seen a car in my lifetime that has been as dominant as those two. I know we've seen dominant cars, but... There's always been chinks in their armour. There's always been weaknesses that other teams have just not exploited. And in 2004, this was true. Williams and McLaren dropped the ball. And Renault were building up to a massive two-year period after that with Fernando Alonso. But even now, you look at those two cars in particular, and they would still compete with the modern cars of today. They're that good. Yeah, I think I've sold it enough. I think I've done the justice on this. <laughs> Although I am aware, Courtney, in future episodes, I need to bring you more in because I know half of this is just me going on on a monologue. And I apologise, guys, because I know Courtney's the one that brings in the viewers, not me. Um, I'm, I'm like the James. Don't make me swear. I'm like the James May to your Jezza. Don't make me swear. <laughs> I was going to swear. Well, we ain't got a jar out for it yet, so you're more than welcome to if you want. But I'm about to use an F. (laughs) We've used F a lot in this episode, in more in a positive manner, so uh, maybe I'll... uh... But yeah, that's just some food for thought, guys. Like I said, uh, it's a long one, so I don't expect you all to sit through it all the way through, but I appreciate you guys um, indulging with us and taking some time to listen to us talk about some of our favourite cars. Um, and I hope you agree with some of them. If you don't, that's absolutely fine. But I'd love to... I'd love for you guys, actually. I'm going to put a challenge on this. On the Instagram page, on posts we put in the future, even on the YouTube comments, if you're interested, put some of your favourite cars down there, some of your favourite car models in there. I'd love to see what you guys enjoyed, what some of your favourite cars were in Formula 1. If you year. So, particular memories from those years. Absolutely. I mean, we talk about certain cars in that, but there are some other great cars that... We talk about winners. We talk about cars that have won, have been successful. I think there's one thing we all had in common with our list, Courtney, is every single car we mentioned won a world championship. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, we didn't actually pick one out. And it's hard to pick one out that doesn't win because there's obviously the first thing you look for in Formula One to be a favourite car or something is one that wins or successful. But in this case, we've gone for champions, ones, world beaters, ones that could arguably go up there as the greatest of all time. And in a way, that's why they're in our list. I know we talked about oh, some of them not always the greatest of all time. And some of them weren't. I mean, the M23, for example, McLaren, great car. But I would never consider that to be one of the greatest of all time for a lot of reasons. Um, you know, the Lotus 49, a great car. Brilliantly. It's legendary. And it was inspiring and a pioneer for many cars that that followed. But again, because of the era it was at, I will never consider it to be one of the greatest cars of all time. It's one of my favourites, but definitely not pound for pound one of the greatest. But then, you know, what do I know? <laughs> I'm just a fan like you guys. Every opinion is the same. But um, I think... Probably a good time to wrap this up, I should say, Courtney. We've, I've been waffling on for quite a long time. It's all right, mate. It's and all right. <laughs> going to get you more involved in future episodes. I mean, these two uh, are very much a technical episodes for the hardcore Formula 1 enthusiasts. But uh, normal service will be resumed for the next episode. We're going to obviously look back on some of the news that's been going on the last couple of weeks. Uh, there's a lot of interesting stories to go around. And of course, guys... Do check out the Instagram page as well. Courtney's put forward some suggestions for stuff that you want us to talk about in future episodes. We'd really appreciate it if you just took part in these polls. Just to let us know what you think. Let us know what you want us to talk about in these episodes. It's a bit difficult in the moment with the current COVID-19 situation, which I'm glad we've managed to veer away from as a distraction. But do let us know if there's anything in particular you want us to cover in Formula One news, or if there's other stuff you want us to talk about in general, um, Formula One related as well, you know, other things if you want to see some other stuff. So do let us know. Please give the uh, video a like if you've enjoyed it. Please subscribe to the channel, really helps us out. And follow us on Instagram and Twitter as well, DNF1 underscore F1 podcast as well. And um, so I guess that's all that's left to say is thank you, Courtney, once again for joining us via the realms of the telephone. What a great invention. <laughs> it really is. I really appreciate it. Now, it's really saved our bacon a bit. And it's, uh, yeah, not much more we can say on that, really. We've been talking about great innovations and it's another one. So, uh, and, uh, yeah, that's it from us, I suppose. So, yeah, Courtney, once again, thank you very much for joining us. Always a pleasure Always to have pleasure. you on. And we will see you on the next DNF1 F1 podcast. So, take care, guys. See you soon. Podcast Network.